0: And welcome to the CapEx podcast brought to you by the Center for Policy Studies. I'm John Ashmore, the editor of CapEx. This week, we've got a new report out from the Center of Policy Studies entitled, pithily, The Future of Driving. It's a big topic. Fuel duty currently brings an enormous amount for the Treasury, but that's all going to change when we switch to electric vehicles in the decade ahead. And to discuss that for this week's episode, we brought along the author of that report, our energy and environment researcher, Dylan Smith. Dylan, thank you very much for being here back on the podcast after your biofuels episode, which seems just a few weeks ago. To use a transport metaphor, you're a bit like London buses. We didn't have you for ages and then you've come along twice in quick succession. Thank you very much for joining us. As anyone who listened to that podcast will know, Dylan has been with us having worked in banking for a while and then joined the glamorous world of think tanking and now researches all things energy and environment related. Just to kick off by way of background, what is the kind of electric vehicle situation in the UK. In case anyone doesn't know, what's the legislation and what's coming down the track? Sure. Thanks,
1: John. Very glad to be coming a regular on the CapEx podcast. So for those who don't know, electric vehicles are are the future, particularly for cars. We have a 2030 phase-out date uh, for new petrol and diesel cars. So to be clear, you can still drive around your old diesel car after 2030. You just won't be able to buy a new one. And in 2035, extend it to hybrids as well. The loose prices is coming down significantly. The running costs are significantly cheaper.
0: So, for anybody listening, please rush to make your next car an EV. We just actually, this week, I think they've just signed a deal for a massive battery factory as well. It's all going on here in the UK. But as you say in your report and in a piece for CapEx, which I obviously recommend you all read, this has a pretty big fiscal consequence. So, again, by way of background, how much. Do we get in fuel duty? How much does the Treasury take in in fuel duty at the moment, and how much will they lose over the coming years? Do you reckon?
1: Yeah. So just to remind people because people sort of understand fuel duty, but but oftentimes can't quantify it. So every time you fill up at the pump, the government levies fuel duty. It's uh, fifty two spot nine five p per liter right now. Rishi Sunak cut it famously a year or so ago. And then, of course, you pay VAT on on top of that. And so if you think about it, fuel duty over time is going to be quite a large portion of the government's budget. Right now, it raises roughly 25 billion, which is a substantial portion of the government's budget. Then on top of that, you have vehicle excise duty, which up until uh, the autumn statement wasn't actually paid by electric vehicles. It's now being added on. So from 2025, EVs will pay VED. But essentially, electric vehicles right now are not really paying for their use of the road. As this continues over time, receipts for the treasury will continue to fall. The OVR has called this the single biggest long-term fiscal cost of decarbonization. And of course, there's you know more of this coming down the track. Obviously, how big of a problem this is for the treasury will depend on what the take-up rate is. But of course, however long it takes, in reality, receipts will fall to essentially zero over time. This problem will only continue
0: to grow as things continue to rise. Just to bring you back to my first question about the kind of rise of EVs. I mean, do we expect in ten years that we will have more or less the same number of drivers or proportion of drivers, but they'll just be driving electric vehicles, or because so many people are going to have to buy new cars, there will actually just be fewer people driving, more people carpooling, and so on. I think what the government would want
1: is to shift people more towards car sharing, public transportation. You know, in in policy wonky terms, this is called modal shift, and the thought being that particularly for people in living in big cities over time, as public transit improves, you decide that you don't actually need a car. Of course, that's less sort of possible for people in more rural areas where public transit is less good. Now, to be clear, nobody's trying to force you out of your car. If you want to you know, buy and drive a car for the rest of your life, you're perfectly welcome to do so. I think the government is just trying to make it easier so that if
0: you wanted to take pu- rely on public transit rather than driving, you could do so going forward. As I said in the intro, there's going to be a big shortfall. You mentioned 25 billion there. Let's say a lot of that, because people will still be driving petrol cars, so it won't entirely disappear. But let's say you're in the treasury, you're thinking, oh, bugger, we better do something about this. And you propose a specific, quite kind of high tech, perhaps, solution to this, which is per mile charging. Now, just briefly, how does that work?
1: You've got an electric vehicle right now you don't pay anything for your use of the roads. And what we're essentially proposing is that you pay for the roads kind of in the same way that you pay for fuel duty today, right? The more you drive, the more petrol or diesel you need, the, therefore the more fuel duty you pay. And essentially per mile charging replicates that for electric vehicles. So you've got, you know, your brand new Tesla or Nissan or whatever it is, and essentially you're going to pay a set per mile charge. And we think that per mile charge should vary by the weight of the vehicle, but otherwise is a set per mile charge for wherever you drive. And essentially, your monthly bill is uh, the number of miles you've driven times the per mile rate, and boom, there you go. To be very clear, this is not congestion charging. We are also not tracking where you are. What time of day you drive is completely irrelevant. The only thing that matters is the raw miles that come out of the odometer every month.
0: You've slightly preempted my question then, which was going to be how would people pay it? And you said monthly. But my other question is how would it kind of physically work? What's being tracked by whom with what technology?
1: There are lots of different ways that you could assess this. What some sort of countries and states around the world have done is essentially you literally just submit your milometer readings at the end of the month to the government and boom, you know, times your per mile rate, that's what you pay. We suggest if you want to do that, you should be able to do that. We did a fair bit of polling and focus groups for this, and a lot of people did have a sort of concern about privacy or that, you know, government's tracking them or something like that. So we want to keep those considerations in mind. That being said, of course, you know, take a picture and submitting your myometer readings every month is a bit of a hassle. There are sort of increasingly convenient ways that you could do this, for example, and sort of automatic device that would essentially automatically submit those readings. Think of it like an energy smart meter, right? You don't have to manually submit meter readings. Also you have to remember a lot of new cars today come with GPS. So of course, the easiest thing is just to get access from that data from
0: the auto manufacturers and then boom, you don't even have to do anything. And am I right in thinking this would vary? You mentioned the weight of the vehicle, but if it's doing several things at the same time, because it's both a revenue raiser, but it's also trying to moderate or modulate people's behavior on the roads. So would you pay less to drive at night, for example? So again, we're not talking about Congestion charging
1: or anything that takes into account when or where, all that matters is just how many miles you drive in a month. Now, we can get into congestion charging and other things like that, because you know, we talk about the lunging and congestion charge, and generally, we're a fan of that in sort of specific contexts. But for a national scheme, none of that would matter. Only the raw miles you drive. What matters, in the same way that for fuel duty today, you don't pay more or less fuel duty if you drive you know, at night versus in the day.
0: Right. Okay. So it's as, as faithful a replication of the existing taxation system, but for electric. How feasible do you think this is? You said other countries had tried it in other states. I mean, has this specific version of per mile charging been done? And if so, successfully? It has. Now,
1: there are lots of different ways that you could do this in terms of doing per mile charging for electric vehicles. Yes. Yeah, so the Australian state of Victoria has brought such a system in. It's an interesting one because. On the one hand, you want to make sure EVs pay their fair share, and you know, treasuries all around the world are keen to start taxing electric vehicles. On the flip side, you don't really want to dent EV take-up, right? And so Victoria is sort of relatively unique in bringing in this kind of a charge now and sort of making it mandatory rather than in five years or something like that when take-up is much stronger. This system does seem to work. I mean, you literally take a picture of the odometer reading on your dashboard and send it you know, via email to a government email every... I think it's month, and then they sort of work out what charges you have. Obviously, there's been a lot of controversy over it, but I think it's more because this system is brought in now and could potentially dent EV take-up, and that's one of the big things we want to keep in mind, right? We don't want it to become a, well, EVs are complicated and I have to wrestle with this new per mile charging system, and I'll stick with my petrol or you know my trusty diesel kind of a thing. Obviously, that conversation will have to happen, but we'd much rather it happen later this decade when sort of the take-up is much stronger. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.
0: Yeah, one of the criticisms and something you mentioned in your piece for us is that we raise an awful lot of tax from motorists, but then the investment in the roads is not nearly at the same level our stat of the day, in fact, a couple of days ago, was that public spending, so national and local, is about $11.5 billion, but the tax take is nearer sort of 30 In your new system, let's say we did this, would you envisage more hypothecation, so tax raised goes directly to the roads? Because there are sort of various problems with hypothecating taxes in principle. We don't normally like that. Yeah, so hypothecation is
1: actually one of the big things that we um, sort of go for in in our vision of the system. As you say, obviously, right now, yeah, far more is raised by taxing motorists than is actually reinvested into the roads. And people sort of understand that and get quite frustrated by that. Now, you could argue that for carbon taxation purposes, it's good that, you know, petrol diesel drivers are taxed heavily, you want them to switch to EVs. But when we're in an EV world, a lot of those sort of externalities have decreased. And so one of the things that we say is The Treasury could use this as an opportunity to use hypothecation more broadly and try to link what you raise from um, motor taxation to spending on the roads and potentially other spending on sort of buses or other bits of public transit. But overall, trying to reassure drivers that when we're talking about we're charging you for the use of the roads, it's a sort of commensurate charge for
0: the damage that you're causing and, and the externalities that you're causing. You mentioned the different schemes we've had and and London, we have obviously had a congestion charge. This is very kind of politically fraught territory. I mean, let's talk about one of the schemes that we already have here in London, which is the ULES. I mean, what's gone on there? It's not exactly the same thing as what you're proposing because it's more to do with pollution, but it does give you a flavor of how, for want of a better word, how toxic this kind of debate can be. I mean, do you favor those sorts of low emission schemes as a general principle? And what's gone wrong in London that so many people seem to absolutely hate it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So it's important to say up front, clean air zones are quite a different beast from the kind of per mile charging that we're suggesting here, and also quite different from congestion charging, right? Both the kind of per mile charging for EVs and things like the lead of congestion charge. It doesn't matter what vehicle you drive. You, you know, need to pay in some capacity in the congestion charges if you drive into the zone. Clean air zones, it's not about at all about we're trying to tax every vehicle. It's about we're trying to get people who drive really old vehicles that are quite high polluting to upgrade it to a cleaner vehicle and thus help clean up the air. The whole point is air pollution is too high. That has real world health impacts on the young, on the elderly. If you live near major arterial route, it, you know, it's a problem in London. It's a problem in places like Manchester the whole point of Clean Air Zone is just to say, if you've got an older vehicle, we want you to upgrade it. We will also provide help for those who need it. And if, you know, after various means of persuasion, we can't persuade you, then we will charge you. But the point is not to raise revenue. The point is not to sort of congestion charge. The
0: point is to try to get you to upgrade your vehicle. So a lot of the opposition seems to be tied in. Like so many things, Like we see it with 15 minute cities and so on, some of it is proper kind of, tin hat stuff about the World Economic Forum stealing your car and things. But I think in a lot of it, the ULEZ stuff is really a, it's just a backlash against Sadiq Khan. Despite Labour's popularity, he's really unpopular as a mayor. I mean, look, we also do critique
1: the way that TfL and Sadiq Khan have handled this in certain ways. For example, one of the things that frustrates me the most is the name ULEZ means nothing, right? the first time you, you ask people about this, people think, okay, emissions. Is that low carbon emissions? Or are they trying to get me to buy an EV? No, this is air pollution, right? If you think about similar schemes around the country, Birmingham's scheme is called Brum breathes right? Keep the focus on air pollution, understand the metaphor. It creates a different perception. Similarly, so much of TFL's adverts and sort of marketing around this is all about payment, right? It's check your vehicle if it's compliant. If not, you have to pay 12 quid 50 a day which is not the point. The point is, we don't want you to pay this charge. The point is, we want you to upgrade your vehicle. If I were them, I would decide the communications quite differently. Also, the scrapture scheme, for example, so if you're on benefits, you can get two grand to scrap a car. You could also use that money for public transit vouchers now, which is good, but we suggest that that should be more generous, right? Again, using Birmingham, for example, the threshold was, if you're earning under 30 grand, you can access a scrappage scheme. In London, You know, there's a big gap between somebody who's on benefits and somebody who's earning 30 grand. Sadiq will say, well, you know, we can't find the money. And one of the things we say there is all that money that you're raising from US, why don't you recycle that into scrappage schemes, right? And that could mean the scrappage scheme could be a lot more generous.
0: Yeah, I think there's some interesting points there. It's very difficult to see through the fog. Once an issue gets taken up by certain sort of influential people, shall we say, it becomes kind of you're on this side or the other whereas perhaps there actually is a middle ground. Let's just return to this per mile charging, which as you say, is a bit different. What do you think, and I realize this is a difficult thing to model, do you think people in a per mile charging world will be more conscious of how many miles they're driving and change their behavior as a result? So, that's certainly a hope.
1: I don't want this to come across as sort of big brothery, we're trying to you know engineer behavioral change behind the scenes but rather just one of the things that we suggest is something called a free mileage allowance, right? How that will work is you get a certain number of miles to drive for free per year, and then the per mile charges kick in above that. We're going to vary that free mileage allowance based on where you live, right? So if you're in central London, your free mileage allowance is pretty low. If you're in the Scottish Highlands, your free mileage allowance is pretty high. And in that sense, it's a very gentle psychological nudge to say, if you're living in central London and still drive a car, you know, you have a lot of public transit options. We hope that people will sort of use that number, not necessarily at all as this is only the number of miles I can drive every year, but you certainly have people be thinking along the lines of, well, if I only drive, you know, 2,000 miles a year, I don't have to pay for my use of the roads, right? And I guess from a public policy perspective, that's good because that accomplishes some of the modal shifts
0: and of course, all the additional benefits from that. Okay. And you mentioned Birmingham. We've talked about London there as well with regard to different schemes. I'm assuming that this per mile scheme would only really work on a kind of national level, or could you do it regionally?
1: No. So fuel duty and, and these big sort of national charges, we think makes sense to be a, a national sort of replacement for that. You know, Obviously, there are different ways that you would tie it in with local schemes. One thing that we suggest is a, a sort of unified payments platform, right? So rather than you have to register with TFL to pay the and in congestion charge, you'd have to register with the national government to pay. Per mile charges and similar for the Dart charge and all that kind of a thing. Essentially, you link it all into one thing on the back end to make it easier for people.
0: But no, this I think has to be a national scheme. I mean, it strikes me that that kind of tech is not difficult as well. I mean, if you hire a car through like Zipcar or something, it just automatically pays the various charges that you incur. That's quite an interesting one. I mean, how feasible do you think this is, and how seriously are people? in government looking at this, given that we're only talking about six, seven years down the line now. So
1: the Transport Select Committee put out a big report on this last year, which was quite helpful. Government is certainly aware that this issue is coming down the track. The Treasury position is essentially, you know, we're not actively considering this kind of a thing right now, but I think they know that this is coming down the track and they will have to do something on this at some point. Obviously, this is, you know, could turn into a politically difficult issue, so I don't really see that much happening this side of a general election, but I think the government, whatever government of the day, will have to stake out a position on this soon. And frankly, this system will take a while to build and bed in and get people comfortable with. So from my perspective, the sooner they
0: start publicly talking about this and figuring out what direction they want to take this in, the better. Just to finish off, we'll go cycle back to the beginning a bit one of the big criticisms or concerns about electric vehicles is the sticker price. And you mentioned it's come down. It used to be enormously high. You know, Yeah, you can see it is, it is down and that's not all due to subsidies and so on. I mean, how much more slack do you think there is or potential for that cost to come down given the kind of inherent cost of mining, you know, lithium and stuff like that, and the finite nature of some of the components that go into batteries, all that kind of stuff? Do you think there is enough room for prices to come down in a way that will make electric vehicles affordable to sort of the average Brit? Uh, the
1: short answer is absolutely. I mean, the estimates that I have seen based on consultancies who look at that seem to think that essentially in the next couple of years, we'll hit price parity between you know your bulk standard EV and your bulk standard petrol or diesel car, which is great. Fundamentally, though, if you think, I mean, what constraints on critical minerals is obviously quite important for EVs and batteries, but happily, it's a free market think tank. The forces unleashed by capitalism. Every car manufacturer in the world can see the direction that this is going. There is enormous amount of R and D being poured into making EVs cheaper, making batteries more efficient. Some of the the newer batteries that are um, coming out and potentially, hopefully, coming on stream relatively soon will be significantly more efficient than the ones today. So, from my perspective, in five years, my expectation certainly is that the sticker price will be the same, if not lower remember the running costs are substantially
0: lower even today. And so overall, that will be sort of a good cost decision for the average British family. Charging network? I mean, we're pretty far off where we need to be on that, especially in some rural areas. I mean, how confident are you on that?
1: Also confident the government has a target of 300,000 public charge points in place by 2030. We're on what, like 40,000 or something at the moment? Yeah, high 40s, I think is the last time I checked. Obviously, that is an enormous ramp up to get there. But you know, the rate of increase right now is actually pretty substantial. Also, what you have to remember is certain newspapers love playing up the sort of, oh, everybody waiting at charging stations over Christmas kind of a thing, which is certainly, you know, can be the case. And the government, for example, is, is working hard on sort of petrol style charging hubs on the, you know, big motorways and, and the A-roads to help with that. But the vast majority of people charge at home overnight, right? And so the real issue is if you live in a city and don't have access to all street parking. That's where it can get a little bit more tricky. And then, you know, or of course, if you charge overnight and you're taking a big cross country journey, then fine. That's also an important issue. But I think the media narrative gets very caught up in the public charging network and sort of forgets that for most people. I mean, my partner's family has an electric vehicle at home. They charge it overnight every night, which, by the way, the Octopus, for example, has an EV charging tariff, which will charge you super cheap energy to charge it from, you know, midnight to 5 a.m. Unless you're driving quite a
0: long distance, that should be enough charge for the day. I think there's plenty to get our sort of teeth into there in terms of the various parameters here. Dylan, thank you very much indeed for joining us. I'm sure this this issue is definitely not going to go anywhere, so I'm sure we'll hear more from you in the future. Thank you all at home as ever for listening and do tune in next week for another episode of the CapEx podcast. (laughs)